Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, um, go to Acts 15, if you would. If you're a guest, thanks for being here. We are uh, halfway through our study in the book of Acts. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of space and just talk about gratitude and, and what God's done for us so that we can celebrate the Thanksgiving season well. And then we will also be introducing our Christmas series to you that I'm pretty excited about, so you won't want to miss that. But today we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and so I'm going to have you stand with me. I'm going to read our text off my iPad since someone stole my Bible. Who steals a Bible in a church, all right? I mean, they're crying out loud. Yeah, someone needed it. Acts, chapter 15. Verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to go down to verse 35 as well, 36 as well. And I'm just going to prepare you right now. This is, uh, this is what's called a flavor adder, okay? So when you're making stew, in order to have all the flavor go through the stew, what do you have to do to it? You got to stir the pot, all right? And today is a stir in the pot day, so you're going to have to uh, just prepare your heart for God to speak to us. I'm excited for what he has to say to us. But uh, just want to give you fair notice, all right? Acts 15 and verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I told the folks at West, that's what I'm going to call my fights with my wife from now on. No small dissension and debate, all right? (laughs) Paul, Paul and Barnabas, I mean the fight that I had with my wife many years ago. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And then look at verse 35. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone to them with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And let's pray. God, we thank you for this topic that you have put in front of us today with your word. God, we trust that your Holy Spirit is going to speak to us. And we pray that he'll prepare our hearts to receive, to hear, to understand, And to obey. God, we don't want to be people who simply hear your word, but we want to, in gratitude, obey your word. And so would you empower us to do that? And would you grow us and and strengthen us and establish us so that your name can be made much of in this place and in this neighborhood and in this city and in this region? And we'll thank you for all of that in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So if you've been with us throughout the book of Acts, you know that the book of Acts is really a historic rendering 
of the expansion of the gospel. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and he says to the apostles, I want you to start where you are in Jerusalem, and I'm going to use you as witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And what we see is that through chapter 7, the church is functioning in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, we see that a guy by the name of Philip goes to Samaria and that he gives the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. And that's a turning point in the book of Acts in which the uttermost, that pagan Gentile world that had previously been untouched with the gospel becomes the focal point of the story in the book of Acts. And when you come to Acts chapter 13, you have a church in Antioch. That church has an eldership that lays hands on a man by the name of Paul and Barnabas and sends them out for the purpose of planting churches. By the time you come to Acts chapter 15, something happens that's really, really relevant to us and that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about here today, and it's this. Church folks get into a fight. Church folks get into a fight. That's what happens in the book of Acts chapter 15. If you look at Acts 15 and verse 1, what we see is that some men from Judea, and remember our kind of timeline and our geographic location, some men from Judea come to Antioch and they begin to preach that in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law of Moses, which is the law that we find in the Old Testament. And that's where we see that Paul and Barnabas have this uh, not small dissension. They have this debate. And this council in Jerusalem occurs that really becomes a central uh, point of the book and a transition in which, uh, really, for me, the, the, the church has kind of trampolined out of this chapter into what it is going to become. Two things that I want to talk about today. Uh, when you talk about the idea of conflict, the inverse of that is, is authentic unity. And so I want to talk about the nature of unity, what it is how we can experience it, how we can understand it. And then I want to look at what the folks in Jerusalem are arguing about because what they're arguing about is very relevant for us here today. So let's talk about this idea of unity, a church that is unified, unified, relationships that are unified, families that are unified. This thing that is kind of like a unicorn for a lot of us, right? We like to talk about unity and tolerance and grace. We just don't experience it very often. And so I want to uh, give you a couple things, if you're taking notes, for you to think through and pray through so that God can, by his spirit, unite our hearts here at Damascus Road. The first thing about unity is that you need to understand that unity is about maintaining unity, not attaining unity. When you read through the book of Ephesians, what you see is that in Jesus, he creates how many bodies? One. One body. One body with one God, with one spirit, with one vision, with one baptism. One, 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 one. God says you in Jesus are unified. Not because of Jesus go get unified. You are unified. And when a church is experiencing division and conflict, it's not that they haven't gotten up to the place where they're unified. It's that they've left the place where they're unified. They need to get back to who they are in Jesus and get back to understanding the gospel in its fullest form in their midst and live that out so that unity can occur. Unity is something that exists. You have it. You are it as a Christian and it exists in a church. And when it isn't existing, it's not because we haven't got there. It's because we left there. The next thing that you need to understand is that unity isn't 
the absence of disagreement. Unity isn't the absence of disagreement. This will help you in your marriage, in your relationships, with your kids. You can be unified and still disagree. These were individuals who loved Jesus. These were individuals who believed the Bible. These were individuals who were passionate about their convictions, and yet they disagreed. They disagreed with one another. And you need to understand that sometimes, whenever we come to places where our disagreements cannot be uh, unifying, we can separate and still be unified. At the end of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, what happens to them? They go their separate ways. And as they go their separate ways, God uses both of them in the places that they go to. And so unity in and of itself is something that we already have, not that we're trying to get. Unity makes space for us to disagree and still be okay. And unity makes space for us to go our separate ways and still be okay. But when we think about how do we achieve unity, let me give you three things. The first thing that must be if we're going to have unity is that we have to know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Have to know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. A guy by the name of Augustine said it this way. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom. In all things, charity. We need to be unified around, in our language, the close-handed things that make us who we are. Tony talked about those today. The gospel, community, and mission. The Bible is true. Jesus is God. God saves us by his grace. Close-handed essentials. Almost everything else is a non-essential here at Damascus Road. Let me tell you why this is so important. I have never had somebody come up to me in any of the churches that I've served in and made this statement to me. I am leaving this church because I don't believe Jesus is God. Not once. I've never had anyone say, I am done here because last night I decided the Bible isn't true. Never. I've never had anyone say to me, I am furious and I am ticked off and I will not stand for it and I will leave because God does not save me by his grace. You know what people leave over? That person said that thing about me and I'm mad at them. People leave over... I like this version of the Bible and you like that version of the Bible. People leave over, I want the music to be this loud and at Damascus Road, well, it's this loud, but. (laughs) Right, we get that, yeah. What are all of those things? Non-essentials. They're all non-essentials. And for some of us to achieve unity, we have to use wisdom to get clarity around whether or not this is a closed-handed issue that I need to divide over, it's a non-essential, open-handed issue that I need to get over myself. That I need to get over myself. Now, the reality of it is that for some of us, our non-essentials are strong enough that we can say, look, I'm gonna go this way and God bless you and all those kinds of things, and that's all well and good. But for the most part, when we're talking about true biblical unity, unity is not a, a, a agreement on everything. Unity is not agreement on anything. Unity is not the lack of diversity. In fact, diversity is something that we want here at Damascus Road. I want you to disagree with me on some things. I want you to. I know that's hard for you to believe, right? I want you to disagree with me because if you don't disagree with me on anything, then one of us isn't necessary here. And so we need diversity to flavor the stew of our community, and we need to be able to say, look, this isn't an essential thing, but it's an important thing to me. Non-essentials and essentials. In essentials, we want unity. In non-essentials, we want freedom. You're free to disagree. In all things, we want charity or love. Number two, 
When we have disagreement or conflict, we need to go toward one another. Whenever Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement with the individuals from Judea, where do they go? Where do they go? Facebook. No. What do they do? They pack their bags and they go to Jerusalem. They go toward the individuals that they're having conflict with. And they say, let's sort this out. This is an incredibly simple, incredibly practical, incredibly complicated idea. The idea that when I disagree with somebody for the sake of unity, I go toward them. Which is two, there's two aspects to that. Number one, I don't go away from them. Right? I don't avoid them. I don't get passive about it. I don't get evasive about it. I go toward them. Number two, I go toward them, not toward somebody else. Gossip and slander is something that will destroy unity with incredible, incredible uh, influence and accuracy. The gospel is that we are unified in Jesus. The gospel is that through the Holy Spirit, we can identify essentials and that when we disagree, we don't go away from one another. We don't um, uh, uh, talk to other people about it. We go, we go towards one another. We sit down together. And when we sit down together, we do what Romans 12 says. We prefer one another. We prefer one another. Another way to say that is we show up humble and we show up intending to listen. We show up humble and we show up intending to listen whenever conflict arises, and it will. In a church this size with two locations, conflict will happen. We show up toward one another. We show up intending to listen, intending to understand, intending to honor, intending to prefer. That can't happen if I go the opposite direction from you. It can't happen. And then number three, together, together, Paul and Barnabas, they show up to Jerusalem, they go into a room, and they say, let's humble ourselves, let's pray together, let's listen to the Holy Spirit, and let's submit ourselves together to the Scripture. Let's submit ourselves together to the Scripture. You know, unity isn't about whether or not you're right or I'm right. It's about whether or not we're obeying God's Word. Right? That's the central unifying theme of this church. If God says it and we understand it, we obey it. We center ourselves on it. We submit ourselves to it. And conflict isn't about I win or you win or I compromise or you compromise. It's whether or not we together obey God's word or we don't. And so what you see in Acts chapter 15 is you see men who say this is an essential they pack their bags, they go to Jerusalem, they go into the room, they're not, they're not crass, they're not hardcore, they're not banging on the, on the table necessarily, they show up toward one another, preferring one another, asking God to speak and saying, whatever God says, we're all going to do. We're all going to do. And this is a great testimony for a church. This is a great testimony for a church. Now listen, this takes work, and this could be awkward, and this can be painful, but how many of you know somebody who has been displaced by conflict in a church? Raise your hand. That's a lot of hands. The inability to maintain unity by centering ourselves on Scripture, by going toward one another, and by recognizing essentials and non-essentials isn't just about you and I. It's about the person that God wants to save that God wants to know, who says, I'm not going to go to a church because all that is is a bunch of hypocrites who gossip and slander. 
And so we have a testimony in the book of Acts, chapter 15, that's a wonderful testimony. And I'm I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit does this, because if you're like me, when I'm reading through the book of Acts, I'm kind of like, man, uh, this church is, I mean, it's got some persecution and all that, but good things keep happening in the church. The Holy Spirit comes on them, and then they grow to 3,000, and then they plant churches, and that church plants churches. I mean, good, good, good. And I'm kind of like, man, I I don't even know. And then they get in a fight, and I'm like, oh, now I know where I am. That makes sense to me. I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit saw fit to show us a church that argued, a church that fought and show us how they structured it so that they could walk out of that disagreement unified. They could walk out of that disagreement unified. Now, what were they arguing about is the question. This is an important question for us. You need to understand that Acts chapter 15 is about 15 years after the resurrection. We kind of lose track of time when we're reading through the book of Acts. And Paul and Barnabas have been sent out of the church at Antioch and they're planting churches all over the place. And it says that some Jewish men came down and they began to teach the brothers. And they began to teach the brothers this idea. They said that in order for you to be a Christian, you had to do two things. One, you had to get circumcised. Okay, now, last week I had to explain what being a eunuch is. Do I need to explain what being circumcised is or are we good? We're good, thank you, very, very, very much, all right? Number one, you have to get circumcised. Number two, you have to obey the law of Moses. And this idea, this two-pronged idea is the thing that sends Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem, the idea that in order to be a Christian, you have to get circumcised and obey the law. Now let me explain to you a little bit what this thing boils down to. There's three aspects to the law. I wanna tell you about two of them. The first is the moral law. The moral law can be encompassed in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. All those kinds of things. It's this ethical identity that separates us from the culture. And so a Jewish person would say, the moral law distinguishes me from the rest of the, rest of the culture because I understand the difference between right and wrong, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between holiness and sin. And so this moral law is, is one of the, the legs of the law. The one that, I, that is being spoken of here is the ceremonial law. So when I, think of, when I talk to you about ceremonial law in the Old Testament, what comes to your mind? What? What? Weddings? Okay. What else? Sacrifices? Yeah. Food? Yeah. Things that you can and can't eat? Yeah. Sabbath, feasts, um, tabernacle, temple. You have moral law, and then you have this ceremonial law, which created a, it was really, it was really a culture that separated. So the moral law was the right and wrong. The, the ceremonial law were the things that God gave the Jewish people to culturally separate them from their neighbors. And so when you read down through the law, and God's like, don't eat pork. Why did God not want the people of Israel to eat pork? Because their neighbors ate pork, and the way that relationships were established was meals. And so God was trying to separate his people culturally from the surrounding culture by saying, ceremonially, don't do these certain kinds of things. And in doing, you'll not only be distinct morally, but you'll be distinct culturally. Does that make sense to you? Are you with me? Okay. And so... The, the idea that's being presented here for these Jewish leaders is that they have 
understood that God is in the business of saving everybody. Remember with Cornelius, Peter has that vision. He's kind of freaked out about it. But the the Jewish leader is going, okay, okay, God saves all kinds of people in all kinds of places. The thing that they're having a hard time with, though, is if they could approve a commitment to Jesus without inclusion in their Jewish culture. So I get that you're a Christian, but you're still acting like a Gentile, and it freaks us out because we think you should be acting like a Jew. Yeah. Now, when you're kind of looking at that up close, that doesn't necessarily seem relevant to us, so let me take a step back here. We believe that God saves all kinds of people by his grace. I, seriously, I got one amen? Amen, we believe that. We're also pretty familiar with this idea of Christian culture, aren't we? Give me some ideas of what the Christian culture is like in a caricature sense. What do you think of when I say Christian culture? Justice? Well, that's a good one. Okay. Grace? Okay. What? What did you say? Republican. What else? What else? Good works. Baptism. Can I tell you the stuff I think about? I think about certain radio stations. Yeah, 102.5. You know which one I'm talking about, right? I think about certain movies. I think about certain bookstores. Yeah, and a certain kind of music, right? I think about, uh, I grew up in a church where there was a certain kind of dress, right? And a certain kind of hairstyle, which I have obviously rebelled against, all right? And that's why God took it from me. All right, just kidding. Yeah. Um, Certain things that we say and don't say. You've heard of Christian cuss words? What is that? That's 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 a Christian cultural idea. And what I'm trying to say to you is that this same transition and this same struggle that's happening in Acts 15 still happens today. We believe that God saves people, but we have a hard time when people don't get up to speed very quickly on our culture. So let me take a further step back and let me say it to you this way in a theological sense. We, we believe that there is not a moral requirement to receive the gospel. We don't believe that you come to God cleaned up as best as you can, right? And God, you know, checks under, behind your ear and under your armpit and says, yeah, you're clean enough, you're in. We don't believe that God does that. We believe that we come to God and we're immoral and we're sinful and that God saves us by his grace. We don't believe that there's an ethnic requirement to the gospel. We don't believe that God only saves certain types of skin color or certain types of family trees. And, by the way, if we did believe that, we would be out because Christianity started in the Middle East, not in America, right? So we're out on that family tree. We believe that God saves all kinds of people with all kinds of culture, with all kinds of skin color, with all kinds of heritage. We don't believe that there's an intellectual requirement for the gospel. We don't think that God says your IQ needs to be this high and you're in. Or we don't think that whenever we say, God, will you save me? God says, would you please give me the epistemological conclusions that you come from your eschat- bring with your eschatology? What? I don't know what that means. Oh, sorry. We don't, like God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't say you need to know these certain things outside of I'm a sinner and I need a savior. 
We don't believe that God gives a geographic requirement for the gospel. Are you from the burbs? Nope. Ah, I only save people from the burbs. Are you from the country? Nope. Oh, man. I love farms. God doesn't do that. God saves people from all places, all over the globe, and he's, he's working in people's lives and in people's hearts all over the place at the same time. You want another one? There isn't a political requirement for the gospel. <laughs> I love Madison. Yeah. I'm about to step in it. Remember I said, we're stirring. But listen, God saves Republicans. Hey, keep laughing because I'm coming to this side, all right? God saves Democrats, right? God doesn't say, before we do this Jesus thing, could you show me your voting record? God doesn't do that, amen? Amen, Amen. all right. There isn't an economic requirement to the gospel. God doesn't just save middle-class people. And, and, And we've got this weird thing happening where... In Madison, we, we're not sure that he saves rich people, especially if they work, work for a corporation, right? And maybe that, that, that crew goes, yeah, God does save rich people. He doesn't save poor people. And yet, God saves all different kinds of economic standing in all kinds of different places from both sides of the aisle with different IQs and different experiences, with different culture, with different skin color, with different morals. Here's another one. There isn't a sexual orientation requirement to receive the gospel. God doesn't say, hey, FYI, um, if you've slept with this many people before, I got like a seven-person cutoff. Doesn't do that. God doesn't say, here's the thing, if you have same-sex attraction, you ought to know by reading the news. I don't do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say, how many times have you looked at porn? Are you attracted to guys or girls? How many people have you slept with where you're a virgin before you were married? God doesn't say any of those things. There isn't an orientation or a sexual promiscuity requirement for receiving the gospel. There isn't a historic requirement for the gospel. Before we go any further, could you please tell me a little bit about yourself? Right? Could you, could you tell me things that you've done that you're ashamed of and things that you've done that are good? And if the things that are good are this much and the things that are bad are this much, you, that's not a requirement for the gospel. We come to God as a mix of all of those things. And by God's grace, because of none of those things, he saves us. My question then is once God saves somebody, does the church become interested, and make sure you think about it, in them growing into his image or ours? And here's the thing that I've noticed. People know that they're supposed to say his. (laughs) That's kind of like when you're in Sunday school and you're not paying attention, they're like, what, ah, Jesus? Yes, thank you, Timmy. Don't talk again, all right? Yeah. Here's what, here's what I see happen over and over and over again. God saves people entirely by his grace. And then people come into a culture that doesn't seem that pronounced to us because we're a part of it. 
but it seems very pronounced to them. And it's part of our language, and it's a part of our attire, and it's part of our music. It's part of the things that we say we watch and don't watch, things we say we read and don't read. The culture that is created in the church is what was in question here. And there was a group of people who were saying, the culture needs to be brought to bear on the gospel. And Paul's saying, no. And the beautiful thing about this is that James, later in the chapter, says it this way. We ought not to trouble the Gentiles. In other words, we ought not to trouble people who haven't received Jesus or God hasn't saved with anything other than the grace of God. It's hard enough to become a Christian without having to change who you vote for. It's hard enough to become a Christian without having to say, I made this much, I'm from here, and I'm attracted to. This is an incredibly, incredibly important question, so I want you to listen to this. Is our vision here at Damascus Road big enough to see the gospel of Jesus, not as a reform movement, but as good news for the entire world. Not as reform. And we say, listen, we don't want to reform people. Listen, if you want to change people into your likeness, that's what reforming is. And so if we're going to be the kind of church where, you know, you can, you can vote for whoever you want for, but that's Scott Walker. <laughs> that Mary Burke, you know, I saw her resume and, And you know, I've had people get mad at me for bringing up politics, but, but let me tell you why, why I, I, I'm like a bug to bug light here, okay, on this, is because that political thing is about culture and whether or not we're troubling people or pointing them to Jesus. That money thing, are we troubling people or are we pointing them to Jesus? Sexuality, troubling them or pointing them to Jesus. Economics, troubling or pointing them to Jesus. Geography, troubling or pointing them to Jesus. History, troubling or pointing to Jesus. And whatever we do to trouble people creates a culture that is a barrier between them and the redemption of Jesus. And Paul's fundamental point was, I will not be a part of a movement whose vision is to reform. I will only be a part of a movement that is good news to whoever hears it. Good news to whoever hears it. So how then do we go forward in this idea that the gospel is good news? How do we become a church that's united and centered, as we say every single week, on the gospel? What does that mean? Number one, that we need to know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Have you heard this before? Yeah. Yeah. And we need to know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Listen, whenever somebody is interested in Jesus, I don't want them to have anywhere on their radar that they have to vote for. I don't want them to have anywhere on their radar who they're attracted to or who they've slept with. I want to have them squarely focused on the personal work of Jesus. That is the essential That is the essential. And the maddening thing about church folks is that we focus on the non-essentials in and of ourselves as though nobody's paying attention to that. I'm leaving that church because they use the NTL version. What? 
I'm leaving that church because I demand 93 decibels, and it was 97, according to Matt, at least. I won't stand for it. I'm leaving that church. Non-essentials, non-essentials, non-essentials. Listen, I, for the... Yeah. You see, the, the unity thing is a, is, a, is a gospel and mission issue, guys. People who don't know Jesus are smart enough to know that if we can't get along, what we believe isn't really that radical. Why, why, look, I already argue with my wife and my boss. Why am I going to come to church and do it with you? Why are you going to trouble me? Know the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Number, number two, go toward and prefer. You know, whenever I... Um, have spent time with people who have um, significant political, political point of view, significant things that they're ashamed of in their past. Their orientation is very predominant to them and very important to them. What I've noticed is that when I talk about them, it doesn't help anyone. And I've also noticed that when I talk to them, I find out that we agree on more than I think we do. Have you ever had this happen before? That you see somebody who you think believes something and you fill in the blanks. And not only do you fill in the blanks, but you respond emotionally to your filling in of their blanks. So that by the time you sit down with them, they're like, you think this and this and this. And they're like, I don't think any of that. Why does God say if somebody has offended you, go to them? Because he knows that we tend to fill in the blanks. And in the church, we are fantastic at categorizing people. Oh, you voted for them. Well, that means you're a... (laughs) And I don't like number four, seven, nine, 13, and 17. And so I'm going to go hang out with people who aren't like you. And what happens to the church? It splits. Yeah. And so... What are the essentials of the gospel politically? What are the essentials of the gospel economically? What are the essentials of the gospel regarding your sexuality? What are the essentials of the gospel regarding your morality? What are the essentials of the gospel as it pertains to your story moving forward? And what are the non-essentials? What are the non-essentials? And sometimes in order to figure those out, we need to stop talking about and start going toward And when we get two, rather than coming with a three-point outline, we need to come with lots of questions and a closed mouth. Preferring one another, honoring one another, humbling ourselves before one another. And then thirdly, after we have identified the essentials, after we find ourselves in the same room, rather than arguing, maybe we should start this way. Can we pray together? Can we pray together because... I believe that we're unified in Jesus and we have this disagreement. So can we pray? And can I pray that God would humble me and can you pray that God would humble you? And can I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak and can you pray that we'll be able to hear? And can we open the Bible in front of us and say, the Father knows best. And rather than us walking out of here trying to win the argument, we're gonna walk out of here trying to be submitted to Jesus. What would happen to a church that did the work? And that's, this is the truth of it. Unity doesn't happen on drift. 
You don't drift into unity. You drift into division. Did the work of when we disagree with one another because we're unified in Christ. Rather than talking about, rather than evading and being passive aggressive, we said, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And rather than come to that meeting with our notes and with our PowerPoint and with our all of that, we could say, can we pray and ask God to speak to us? Can we pray and ask God to lead us? Can we pray and ask God to give us the opportunity to love one another well and submit to him obediently? What would happen to that kind of church? At the very least, I think that that church would be unified. And the wonderful thing about the book of Acts chapter 15 is that that's exactly what happened. They went into a room on opposite sides of the topic. They went into the room disagreeing. They went into a room vehemently debating and they walked out and here's what the book of Acts says. That they walked out and it seemed good to them and to the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want. To be a church that it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. That we are unified on the person and work of Jesus. His centrality in our midst and our obedience to him for his glory and our joy. And I believe that that kind of tone, that kind of attitude is not reformation good news. It's good news. Stand with me. A couple of things that I want you to just think and pray on as we go into our time of response and praise. We're going to uh, observe communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus, please come up and, and, and do that. We got folks in the back who'd love to pray with you and we're going to sing together. But the question's uh, are obvious corporately, but they really begin individually. What are the things that um, my preferences become troubling? What are the things that, this is how I like it, but it's a barrier between people and Jesus. What are the things that I need to empty my pockets in regards to? What are the things that are essentials and non-essentials? Who are the people that you need to go toward instead of away from in the upcoming week? for the sake of the gospel and the sake of unity in this place. Would you ask God to just in the next few minutes speak to you in a way that you know is from him and would you ask him to give you the courage to obey? Pray with me. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this testimony of church folks fighting. We've all been a part of, we've all heard of churches that splinter around conflict. But God, we claim today that we are unified in Jesus. And we admit today that we understand how that gets sideways. And so God, I pray that you would cement deep in our hearts the good news of the gospel, that you would cement deep in our hearts your power to both save and transform and that you don't need us to create a culture of checks and balances, rules and regulations to see people look more like you. You do that work. And that's what we want. We want you to be at work in our midst. We want you to be saving people in our midst. We want you to be transforming people in our midst. And we want to stay out of the way of all of those things. So God, would you do that work? Would you accomplish those realities? Would you do them for your glory? And would you receive our praise as we see you do it? We'll thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.